You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence special broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com. Good morning. Thank you very much for coming um, so early on a foggy morning. I'm Jan Daly. I'm the co-chair with uh, Peter York of this session. The question you can see behind us, is it art and culture, not politics, that changes the world forever? (laughs) Forever. We have uh, quite high ambitions here. Um, First of all, I'm going to introduce Peter, who is um, actually completely the person who needs no introduction, but for some reason he wants me to do this, so I will. He is one of our foremost cultural commentators. He is a guru of style and all things fine and perfect and beautiful in life. He's an entrepreneur of great success. He wishes me to say that he's an inspired knitwear designer, but I'm not quite sure what that's (laughs) French for. And he's just told me that his favourite word is, and you would never guess this, hygienic. (laughs) So there we are. By contrast. Now be be quiet, because I'm going to say something else first. Yes. Um, You were... You were expecting Julia Payton-Jones on this panel. Unfortunately, she wasn't able to be here, but we are very, very pleased to have David Davis because if we didn't have I'm very him... very similar. Yeah. Well, we, I mean, it was the best we could do in the way of a look-alike, but actually it's a very good thing that he's with us because the politics part of this question would otherwise have been a little bit underrepresented. We feel. Now you go on with the others. Jan, by contrast, has a proper job. I mean, by contrast with me. I mean, it may emerge that, by contrast with our other panellists, she has a proper job, meaning it is definable. Um, uh, she has been the arts editor of the FT since 2005. Before, she was the literary editor. That's enough. No. Yes. yes. And then we'll explain the, we'll explain the other people. Um, <laughs> it says here, uh, Sophie Hastings is a contributing editor of GQ. I wonder why, Sophie, you put that ahead of more distinguished <laughs> work like Art Review magazine and so you know, broadsheets. But GQ, GQ is a, def- a culturally defining moment. Because it's, I think it's fair to say that it is an, the no-brow organisation of all time. Yes. And, um, no, it's the most wonderful thing. If you've been to the GQ Men of the Year thing, it is a fantastic no-brow achievement because all things are represented. So you might get David Cameron, you might get a, a serious fine artist, and you get paid three girls. So all, all things are covered. Uh, Sophie is a writer about art rather than a person who makes art, yeah. which is the word that modern artists always say. They don't say, I was finishing off a little picture there. They say, I was making art. <laughs> now, John, perhaps you could explain what John does, because I don't understand it. <laughs> well, John is an artist. John is an artist. Yes. <laughs> So I think he's got a proper job too, haven't you, John? Yes, yes, it is a, it is a proper job. And sometimes I have trouble understanding what I do. Um, well, this, this doesn't help, I can tell you. 
<laughs> but he's also a curator and the creator of the Beacon Art Project after his move from London to rural Lincolnshire. So he um, can tell us about making art and perhaps the reasons why. Um, actually, John, perhaps I could start by asking you, when you are creating work or curating other people's creations, do you think at all about the question we're addressing today, about small-scale things like changing the world? Or is it just not something that really comes into the mind of an artist? I think it's made, changing the world is a big... I mean, that's a big, a big thing. But I certainly passionately believe that art can change the way we think about and it helps us understand the world around us. And I think through that, through that process of empowering and enabling us to understand what's around us, that in itself will at some point affect, affect change. And that might be change on a very local or individual level. But at some point, you know, that was, I think that sort of cascades into, wider, in, into a sort of wider notion of change. That's... And the other thing I was going to say is this idea of forever. Uh, what interests me about that word in that um, proposal up there is that we will never, ever know anyway whether it will affect change. My first um, instinct when I saw this question was to get out my pen and scrabble out that word forever because I'm a firm believer that nothing is forever. And I think certainly not political change. What do you think? Political change is never forever, is it? Well, well yes, yes, it is sometimes forever. Um, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union was probably forever. Well, one hopes. Um, but uh, I mean, I, I, funnily enough, when I read the title on, uh, uh, after Julia <laughs> ambushed me last night and said, you're doing this tomorrow, um, uh, the, I, I, I forgot to read the forever bit. Uh, and, and I thought, well, actually, you can hit this at two levels, this whole thing at two levels. Now, first, the easy, the sort of mundane day-to-day -day politics, most of which doesn't matter at all. Um, and ask yourself, I mean, you know, politicians, uh, I always think politicians take a Hippocratic oath, you know, first do no harm. Um, and ask yourself, at that level, at that level, um, who has more influence on the public's view of the National Health Service, Andrew Lansley or Holby City? And the answer is Holby City, or Casualty, or, or, or uh, some other... So, so at that level, you know, I, I surrender. You know? <laughs> um, but at other levels, you know, and it's only about once a generation, the reverse is true. Um, Churchill changed uh, history for all time when he refused to negotiate with the Nazis. That was the one decision in his entire life that actually mattered. The rest is irrelevance. Um, Thatcher altered Britain probably forever. Most of the other prime ministers don't really matter. But you know, that, you know, those, those very, very, very big points of inflection, switches, you know, uh, do come up and people step in. My, my constituency, my predecessor, um, was one of my predecessors many years ago was Wilberforce. He changed the world forever, you know, uh, because basically he struck slavery out of the civilised world. Didn't kill it, but he struck it out of the civilised world. So, yeah, there are forevers, but they're quite rare, um, and they are, they are um, maybe once in a generation period, but they do matter. 
you know, they do matter. Yeah. Are there comparable things that artists do or try to do? If you think about 19th century novelists and their description of the conditions of the poor, those helped inform reforms and legislation eventually, or so we like to think. Are there comparable things that artists do now? Um, I'm not sure I was thinking about that. I think perhaps the, the hugely rising population of urban art and street art is a way that artists engage with what's going on at that kind of grassroots level. The guy who won the TED Prize was J.R., a street artist from uh, Paris, who photographs people and puts them like faces of the people, the women particularly living in the favelas in uh, Rio. Or um, he did uh, Palestinian and Israeli people with similar jobs next to each other on the um, Israeli barrier. And he's now asked people to photograph people who mean something to him and send them to him and he'll make them into enormous photographs and they can plaster their environment with them. And he's, he goes to places that are in the news, allows people to reinterpret them and tell their own story at that kind of very grassroots level of, it, of experience to talk about things that perhaps the media are not reporting on. And I think the way people engage with urban art more and more is because it gives them a voice and it talks about, you know, really basic things that they're, they're dealing with. Yes, but a level of obliquity, if there's such a word, that it comes across to a lot of people as sort of social tourism. How does that help in the short or the long term the lives of those people? Because it brings the media back and asks them to reassess and relook at something that's going on that's been in the news. It allows the people to provide the narrative rather than the media coming in and telling their story about what's going on. But he's still a visitor. He's a visitor, but he's engaging the people who are there and he's allowing them to speak. And I think what art does at that level, public art and street art, and art where it's interactive, art on the tube, where people are talking about acts of kindness or local people are filmed and then people are watching a film of people at street parties around the corner in the East End or of what happens when you take the tube and you're pushed up against people in that very close environment and yet there's this distance. And that, that's the space that art often engages with. And to allow people to step back and think about that themselves and, and reinterpret their own environment, their role as an individual in a, in a crowd is, is very important. But a lot of people believe that contemporary art doesn't engage with very much or it engages at a, le a level of such irony, such obliquity that people don't understand the engagement and therefore don't take anything out of it. And there's a strong feeling, isn't there, that contemporary artists feel it's naive, sentimental to do any of the kinds of things that either a narrative painter, mm. like Herkimer, you know, what, what are we wearing out? We're not wearing out just needles and thread, but human creatures' lives. Now, we might think Herkimer was a clanky old thing, but that's a message, and people understood it and people understood 19th century novelists, and mm. they understood what the appropriate reaction in terms of legislation might be. What can contemporary art do that's remotely comparable to that? And your knitwear is doing it for me. <laughs> I, this, is bit, this is a bit like television interference, I think. Yeah. This, 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 this is what's going on here. 
Um, I think um, to follow on from um, Sophie's point, I think uh, um, certainly there's been um, a shift in contemporary art practice in recent years where artists are, there's a new generation of artists that are consciously engaging with with the social, with with the everyday. And so there is uh, an increasing number of um, artists that are becoming more visible through their practices where... Um, the everyday, which is our lives, you know, so it, it could be politics, it could be um, architecture, or it could be some, um, you know, s- s- something else. But I think the, the fact that artists are... No, the point, yeah, what I'd like to say is that artists are able to do this, they can do this, because they don't have this other agenda, this overarching agenda, because that's what artists do. You know, artists make art, and... It's as simple as that. And how they make that art, you know, it comes in many different forms. And I think that's, that sometimes gets lost in the mix. And who, who is telling us that people don't understand contemporary art? Yeah. You know, who's telling us this? And who's telling us that they do? Or if they do, if they do, isn't at the level of what I call Sesame Street art, Dr. Seuss art? <laughs> Jolly you up, but but, but what is wrong with that? It's amazing. What's wrong with Doctor (laughs) Zeus? They are. No, no, it's just a thought. No, no. Look, I served on the Tate Members Council for ten years. I saw that queue develop. Yeah, it is completely amazing, quite wonderful. But what does it mean? But people want to engage. They want to engage with art of their own age. They're not um, alienated by it. No, absolutely. Yeah. And I think we underestimate. We, we, we underestimate the audience. We yeah. underestimate people. We think. Or do they just want to have fashionable fun? No. Well, both. Those families it's on Saturday back. morning. What's, what's, what's wrong with enjoying? It's probably all yeah. of that. It's all of yeah. that. And what yeah. you know, if this is you know, art can embrace everything. Yeah. And that's, I think, the fantastic thing about it. It, it can do that. It's able to do that. And, and if it's really good art as well, you won't know how good it is until afterwards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's the whole point. Art's Absolutely. about insight. It creeps up on you. You pick Dickens. Who knew Dickens was anything other than a popular novelist until actually he started transforming the country mm. by the insights he brought? Oh, sure. yeah. Well... Have we any case studies? Anyway, I, have we any lovely case studies? Well, I think art that crept up on us. Of, you're thinking very, very specifically, Peter. About very specifically. <laughs> I mean, as hygienically and specifically as I can about the relationship between. I think you're. I think you're wanting to find a. a Case where yeah. artist does picture A, world is changed. World better. B, yes. World better. Yes. Finished. Done. Job. Or the I, Shelley thing. I don't think it works like that. I mean, I think that um, what we might be talking about is the way in which art and artists in the widest and cultural life in the widest possible sense can carry forward and maintain sets of values, particularly at times when politicians have gone bonkers. I mean... Um, Which is most times. Yeah. <laughs> most times. Well, um, I went last week to a memorial um, in London for Vaclav Havel, who mm. was a very good case in point. During the repressive years in his country, he was a playwright. Um, at great personal cost to himself, he spent five years in prison for doing absolutely nothing except writing plays. 
He's always described as a great writer, and I went back to read some of the stuff, and I looked and I thought, you know what, he's not really, he wasn't a great writer, he was a great spirit and a great human being and a great changer of the world. And because of the circumstances in which he lived, he did it by writing, because that was the way he could do it. And a way in which you could take your ideas out of the country, actually. I mean, getting... That was the, the way... And in that place and time, very little plastic art was made, because it was too difficult. I mean, there were painters and probably sculptors and other people trying, but it was a very hard thing to do. So writing was probably the way in which you could do it. He, it did have a fantastic effect. Um, and then, as soon as... Um, some freedoms came to his country largely through the influence of people like himself. He became a politician, mm. and then mm. he was a politician and not a playwright. Well, he actually was more of a symbol than a politician in many ways. I mean, he, he didn't actually do much afterwards. He was a president, but but I mean that. But, it, but he's, he's one example of a whole of a continent-wide phenomenon. When when the Soviet Union was at its most repressive, Samizdat was the only glowing ember of freedom inside the inside the state. Uh, and it was that that sort of caught fire when the state started to crumble. Now, those people were unknown, you know, uh, and, th- and th- that's why, in a way, I think the sort of cause and effect approach is wrong, Peter, because they were more catalysts than cause and effect. They were more just the ember, the thing that actually blew up into a flame later on. Uh, you know, Solzhenitsyn might be a better example, who actually exposed, in turn, but was completely repressed. You know, so how would a Russian know in 1975... That Solzhenitsyn had the the right analysis, not the right answer, but the right analysis at that point. They don't. That's, that's why that's why they're great artists. Otherwise, they would be they would be just knocking out copy all the time. I think he's a good example too of, of uh, the thing we were mentioning earlier, actually at breakfast, um, the the way in which art and politics are, are symbiotic in a quite a complicated way. Because, of course, somebody like Solzhenitsyn is somebody who finds himself found himself um, very unhappy, in a sense, and very at odds with the new free society that he'd wished for, partly for religious reasons and partly because he was the personality that he is. But um, it isn't always... I mean, it isn't always a case of getting what you wish for or wanting it when you get it or something. But I think think what we're trying to um, bully you about, Peter, because we are trying to bully you, no question. Uh, What we're trying to bully you about is that you're being too literal about this question. But I think it's good to be literal for a change because... As a contrast to being literal... It's more hygienic to be literal. It's it's certainly more hygienic. You won't mind if I take you as an example, but I will anyway. In describing his work, John says, I I assume that this is what you say, as an artist whose expanded practice encompasses both studio and curatorial activity, through which he explores his interest in the production of art. It cites a production and exhibition. Now, that strikes me as faintly circular... And the, the language of art practice is now more than faintly circular. I don't know how many of you have read The Painted Word by Tom Wolfe, which describes um, quite brilliantly the language of contemporary art as it developed post-war, particularly in the three, in the three capitals, London, Paris, New York. And the requirement to have that language 
to be, be functional at all in high contemporary art over that period, which meant that meaning, deriving meaning from any of that, was confined to a very, very small group of human beings. Now, when we think about art that has social impact, is it that kind of stuff that has social impacts? Or is it popular commercial art? You were talking about Holby City. I would suspect that it's popular commercial art of all kinds that has very, very much more popular impact and affects legislation. I think it's very old-fashioned to think that art is elitist and um, exclusive, and that because there's a language around it that's used in galleries and by critics... That, that Why is it old-fashioned? Because I don't think it's true. That, that, that's a tiny world that doesn't alienate the rest of the world, who are coming to take modern and going to galleries and appreciating, engaging with public mm. art, looking at Elm Green and Drag Set in Trafalgar Square... And, and thinking further, or reading about it in GQ, which is a very um, yes. um, contemporary art type place no, we, to be. We must let John reply, but also we've got someone uh, from yeah, the no, floor, the table. That's an interesting discussion, because I think the difference will be in the time horizons of the impact. Mm. Just to put this out to people, if you see a popular art, you think, oh yeah, look, that's really important, and there's a direct cause and effect. In the more abstract, difficult, hard-to-reach, hard-to-access art, as it were, you think, what the hell is that? I don't actually understand it, but I'm challenged. Yeah. And it's being challenged that's so important. Yeah. And the effect is going to be maybe 15 years from now when I think, actually I look back and I think, well, actually I didn't understand that, but simply not understanding something in the world where I understand everything is so important. So it's the yeah. horizons of the impact, which is really maybe the, the difference between these types of art. Well, one, one comment um, on what you were saying, Peter, about um, the text that's, that's, that's uh, my descriptor, if you like. I think every, every sort of um, uh, group, grouping of, of activities, professions or whatever, have their own particular language. And certainly the first session I, I was at um, yesterday, I mean, there was some, some terminology there and references that I didn't understand but I accepted you know that was a particular you know that's the corporate world that's not the world I operate in so you know of course it's it, it's it's easy for you to take which I I think it's just a cheap shot and I think um cultural commentators <laughs> do no artists artists do you know they 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 they, they are recipients of these and I think the, we live in a very, very sophisticated culture, you know, as, as, it, as, as, as it goes on, as we reach this point forever. And we, as I said earlier, we do underestimate people. You know, we are so, you know, we, we're so well equipped now to decode everything around us and glean meaning from lots of, you know, lots of different things, be it images, objects, situations. I, I think that's... That's what art has done. That's what art and culture has done through time. It's enabled us to understand. It's about enabling us to understand the world in which we live. That's what art does, and that's what culture does. And you, I, I don't know, perhaps you might want art to be elitist, but I, th I think it's important that we, we can all engage and, in, you know learn, you know, educate ourselves. That's, that's, that's really what, what it's about. Well, recently, I'm a pretend professor at UAL. I don't do anything. Um, <laughs> what's, what's UAL? University of, <laughs> uni University, of the, University of the Arts London, a great 
pillar. Is it a highbrow institution? <laughs> it is a great pillar of, of Britain's export drive. They, t- they tell me this on a constant basis because it's part of the creative industries, you see. And uh, we had a do at UAL in which Matthew Taylor talked at us. Um, anyway, he came at us in a rather cross way and said that he'd been struck by how singularly ineffective the special pleading for the arts and funding for the arts had been. That the arts absolutely refused to engage at the level of saying what they were doing and why. And people got terribly upset and said, you're coming at us like an express train, you're horrid. But, and of course, he can be a very difficult person. But nonetheless, you know, there was, there was it in one go. Here was somebody who was formally ran the number 10 policy unit, advised government, thinking about the special case of the arts and funding the arts and saying that the people who had to represent the arts and pl- make the special pleading for them, were very bad at the job. I would love it if, if politicians, even in their busy lives, could reacquaint themselves with the rhythms and the potential and the beauty of the English language. If you look at the text of politicians' speeches uh, today, you get a series of disconnected, almost Pinteresque uh, statements, very flat, all the sort of straining for memorability and usually failing. Um, I looked up um, a Neil Kinnock speech uh, from, from 1986. Now it was a long. That's speech. hardly best of breed. Lot of good it did him. Well, <laughs> well it was. It was. Too, it was too long. And he was Welsh. Who knew? Yes. It was too long. But I tell you what, it was written in paragraphs. There were long flowing paragraphs, and there was an argument detectable. And uh, in your busy lives, politicians don't have time even to watch Holby City, let alone pick up novels, read poetry, go to galleries. Um, but a bit like the arts and the science, the two cultures that nod from each other vaguely from other sides of the room, equally politicians and the arts are strangers, and the proof of it is in the deadness and sterility of these awful, awful speeches <laughs> given by people who seem to have no feel for the language at all. Is it, is it tr- you will know, is it true that Gladstone spoke for four hours Unceasing. Oh yes, oh, yeah. and, and, and many of many of that era of politician did. I mean, spoke for. So, hour, I mean, so I think Wilberforce spoke for seven hours on, on on one aspect of uh, uh, and the, the. Oh, I mean, there are just there are just too many examples to, 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 to cite. I mean, you've got to to come back to to Stefan's point. I mean, I I have a lot of sympathy. I mean, you know, if you want to re- if you really wanted to read a speech which had no. Paragraphs and indeed no grammar. You should, you should have looked at Tony Blair. You know, no verbs. You know, um, it was inter- absolutely a new art form. I have to tell you. you know, so, but the, the 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 simple truth is, it's not their busyness. It's not it's not the lack of time that drives uh, the destruction of political prose, which is what you're talking about. Uh, it's it's the medium through which they transmit. And if if it's more than twenty words long. It doesn't get carried. Mm. You know, uh, my profession measure themselves, regrettably, by the whether or not they get on the ten o'clock news, and if they speak for this long, 
uh, as long as I've been speaking in this question, then they won't get on. So, so you, you've got that problem. Um, uh, the second thing is there is no reward for a beautiful, mellifluous speech. None at all. Uh, who listens to it? Have you ever watched... Um, uh, I mean, it's a real question for sad people. Have you ever watched BBC Parliament Channel? Um, uh, what do you see? You see empty spaces. You know, people are not sitting, hanging on words. The, the, the last generation, really, of, of great, great oratorical, great speakers uh, was probably the 1950s generation. Um, Macmillan... Um, Nye Bevan. Bevan, Powell, uh, people, you wouldn't, you wouldn't agree with their views, but they were, they were beautiful speakers, crafted speeches. Mm. But mm. it actually makes no difference, uh, in truth, as the raw. You know, it's, it's beautiful to read, beautiful to look at, but it makes no difference. So I'm afraid they, they just don't do it. Can I come back on another point? I mean, I, I'm interested in this, in this, this point. Uh, Peter's trying to make this argument, I think, that, uh, about high art, if I might put it that way, um, and it seems to me that there's an sort of artificiality here, that the high art is what gives you the accidental insight. And I, and I choose those words carefully, because much of it will be, will be nonsensical. It won't give you an insight, because it's wrong, you know, because uh, it's human. But when you, the, the, the transition from accidental insight, the brilliant accidental insight mm. of the high art, to it becoming the blinding glimpse of the obvious... Uh, you know, uh, a century ago would, would have been 50 years later now, because of this thing incidentally another piece of art um, uh, because of this thing and, and things like it that's, that's, a, that's almost a 20 minute process you know? um, we were talking on the bus up Jon Snow and, uh, and uh, others were, were talking about um, a YouTube video which has gone viral and has picked up 42 million hits in three days um, which was about some politics in Africa. But yeah, it's beautifully, the you get the Uganda, yeah, beautifully it's crafted. I mean, if you really want, Stefan, beautiful crafting, actually don't look at politician speeches, look at the political YouTube. Uh, because that's, that, you, know, you, you see, uh, and the really successful ones are works of art. They may not be works of art again, you like, but they are works of art. So, I mean, so we're, in a tra- we're in a transformatory process here, both in terms of <clears throat> the sort of art that works and the, the time it takes to go from highbrow art to mass art. And uh, in, in, in that case, it was one week. So is that the trajectory from highbrow art to mass art to impact to the political yes, circuitry? Yes, I think so. Or the other way around? Some people might contend that it is absolutely the other way around, and it goes from mass art to highbrow art, and there it's reflected there. If we can have that young man over there. Hello. Um, She's been waiting a long time. I think there's a a problem with the question in that it's not the purpose or the job of artists or writers uh, to change the world. Um, If they do it, it's an accident. Uh, Their job surely is to reflect it um, at some point they may change it I think artists that try specifically to change the world tend to be very bad artists, they tend to be Albert Speer or whoever um, if you are in the business of socialist changing the world realism, sorry? or socialist realism, socialist realism. Or, yeah, yeah. whatever yeah. It's, it, it tends to be bad art I think the art that has deep meaning tends to be um, 
stuff that takes a while to to manifest itself, you know, in a, in a kind of national consciousness. I'm thinking, you know, recently Jerusalem, um, that play to me was like Our Midsummer Night's Dream or Twelfth Night or whatever it was. Mm. But I can't see it affecting legislation anytime soon. Um, I can see it having a having a deep having a deep penetration at, at another more important level. Thanks for that. We've got so many questions. We're going to have to take them. Uh, Mary or Caroline, whichever first. Mary, go first. I just so completely disagree with what you've said. Um, <laughs> um, Mary Lamb, I, I'm a writer, and I, I think that talking about... I, I'm an author, I write books. Talking about art and culture, if you look at art in a more generalised sense, I mean, is it art and culture, not politics, that changes the world forever? Well, these things are so incremental. Um, I'm only going to give an example about something I've written because it's, an, it's a shorthand... But the last book of mine that was published was a memoir. I had a sister who was schizophrenic who died, vanished and then died, and it's a, a book about finding her after her death. The letters I've had from people all around the world, South Africa, New Zealand, Canada, people saying, my brother's schizophrenic, and since reading your book, I'm going to continue writing to him, even though he never writes back, because it was something I did with my sister, writing into a vacuum. Or I had many, many people write back to me, and I had people whose behavior or outlook was in some way altered because I was lucky enough to be able to share what I learned about my sister. Um, I'm not taking any credit for that. What I'm saying is, firstly, a lot of artists do feel quite messianic about what they're doing because that's the impulse. So I know that as a writer of four books of non-fiction, I write them because I really bloody well care about something I'm trying to get across and something I perhaps want to change. My first book was about nuns. I'm an agnostic. I wanted to find out why women became nuns in the 20th century. But I also wanted to change a misconception and a misperception. I think, you know... So I think people like me who do tiny things, these are drops in the ocean, they're part of an overall thing. And I was saying to somebody last night, you know, I've got three daughters, aged 11, 9 and 5... They're at school. They're growing up in an era of tolerance. They're growing up where gay people, other people of other races, people who speak other languages, um, are completely normal to them. They're growing up in an environment where care for the environment, care care about climate change, is vital to them and completely normal to them. Now, those... Those attitudes in which they're growing up have been informed by art and by politics, and you can't separate the two, and you can't say that things are effective or non-effective. You don't know the impact you're necessarily having. But I would say that, as an artist in a very broad sense, yeah, you do care about what you're doing, and maybe you do want to change things, but it's, it, there's no great, huge, arrogant plan about it. It's just to do with care for what you're doing. Thank you. Go, Carol, right. next. Uh, yeah. I I would like to see art and culture being put to the centre of politics because I think they actually are... They are completely part of the same thing. You look at people like Daniel Barenboim and Edward Said and what they believe they can do through music and words to policy throughout the Middle East and the Arab world and bring a greater understanding to the West of those issues. And I think they are just a small part of what goes on in a daily way in the whole cultural arena to interact with politics, but politics never gives the chance or the weight to culture as an an institution of change, of understanding, and the importance of communicating across cultures and across civilizations. And I think it's a huge hole in politics. I mean, I 
sat on the board of the BFI for seven or eight years, we must have had 20 different um, ministers for culture, ministers for film. It was always an add-on to any agenda. And film is one of the greatest educational tools there is, one of the greatest forms of communication, along with words and visual and sound. And I just don't quite understand why it's always put to the side of politics. That blonde lady's next. I'm Sarah Churchill. I'm a professor of American studies, and I think that there's. A, I think there. I agree with the last couple of comments. I think this is a, there are several false distinctions that are being made here. First, between culture and politics, and second, between high and low art. And although I agree broadly with lots of the points you were making, I would give one example. You asked for a case study. I'll give you one: The Great Gatsby. The Great Gatsby was taken as a popular book when it came out, and it was dismissed as a not very important popular book, a trivial book of the season only, a, a reviewer memorably said. Got that one quite wrong. Um, and it, to Mary's point, Fitzgerald knew exactly what he was doing. It wasn't an accident. He didn't trip and write a great book about American culture and American politics, but nobody could see what it was that he was doing, partly because they couldn't hear him. So they saw it as a popular novel. We now see it as the great masterpiece of the 20th century. So there is movement within those categories. But I would give also one another example of where I think there really is a false distinction, and this goes back to David's point earlier about the changes that politicians make, but also this question of what direction it moves in. Is it art affecting politics or politics affecting art? Um, We were talking about this on the bus yesterday. One of the greatest changes in American culture in my lifetime is a change created by Reagan abolishing the Fairness Doctrine in 1987, which was the the doctrine that, and I don't know what you guys call it, but it's the, the doctrine that you have on the BBC that all positions must be fairly represented and that there's a presumption of civil discourse. Well, we had that in America. Everybody forgets that we used to have it. And Reagan abolished abolished it in the name of free speech. That was 1987. 1988, Rupert Murdoch starts Fox News. Well, Fox News has transformed, in my opinion, very much for the worse, the American political and cultural landscape. And of course that is affecting then arts. And of course there is then a feedback <coughs> loop in which all of our ideas about politics, culture, and arts are being uh, you know, intermingled in all of that. And, and it's, all, it's all moving. And I think that these kinds of distinctions reinforce the, this, the, what we very, in a very ugly way call the silos um, of modern life. And yet those are, those are, in my opinion, false distinctions. And we have to bring the conversation back together the way that we're doing now. I, think it's, I know that, David, you're a last-minute substitution, but I think it's great. I think there should always have been a politician on this panel precisely to have that conversation facilitated. Pass the, um, pass the, the mic just to your neighbour. I think we should draw an enormous distinction between them. And I absolutely don't think we should put art and culture anywhere near the centre of politics. Yes, they are very useful tools. Of course they're useful tools within politics. But the fact is that there is a difference between them. Art and culture are relatively free. You see, when I look up there, I see art, idea, culture, idea, politics, stodge. It's, it's an institutional, organisational thing. And the beauty of art and culture is that they don't have the same... And you don't have to cover your arse and protect your seat and protect your lobby. And in a sense, they are freer to create ideas. Those ideas may be high ideas, low ideas. But government, politics doesn't create ideas. It's thinkers who stand outside, who have the independence, who have that ability to stand back and say... I have no massive agenda here. That's where theory, art... I, I mean, I seem to think of art culture literally just as being, here is a way of looking at the world. And sometimes that really engages with a lot of people and drives change, but I, I think I, I couldn't separate the two more aggressively in my mind. One of those is, is a source of inspiration for change and beauty, and the other is a machine that does stuff. Yeah. Or doesn't. I don't want to come back on that, because I, mean, I, I largely agree with that point of view. I mean, one of the 
things that demonstrate how important art has been down the centuries is the extent to which states have tried to grip it, or institutions like mm. the Catholic Church have tried to grip it and hold it in its control. You know, and when art and <coughs> politics gets too close together, the art gets turned into propaganda, you know, uh, and, and the politics uses it as a support mechanism, you know. Um, uh, and uh, I don't think GQ is lowbrow. But why, why, why do you think... Lowbrow. No, brow. But, but, you know, uh, George Osborne didn't come there to cultivate himself. He came there to be seen in that environment, you know, uh, and make a speech there. So, you know, be very wary, actually, of the confluence of, of, of art and politics. It's dangerous, and it's dangerous because it does down the very independence that people are talking about. Now, the other thing is this... I mean, politi- politicians talk about leadership all the time. Actually, politicians are followers. We swim in the sea that you create. That's the, that's the thing to understand, you know. One of the, one of, the, of the last century, one of the politicians thought to be most important uh, was FDR, was Roosevelt. I would say Steinbeck was far more important about the same issues mm. than Roosevelt ever was. And people will be still reading The Grapes of Wrath in three centuries' time. Well, they won't. Their history lessons will have pushed Roosevelt back to the Stone Age. You know. So, so be, be, just be, be wary. I mean, it's, it's important. And, of course, the thing we haven't talked about, Peter, is the confluences. And, by the way, there should be technology in there somewhere. Yeah. You said this. There should be technology in that, in that subject heading there. Um, there are confluences. But, but I, I, would, I would be wary about thinking about politicians explicitly using art. That's dangerous. Politics and policy, right? I mean, I'm talking about politics in a much broader way, not about just this, this mechanistic implementation of individual policies. Mm. But in my opinion, most great art is political art. Dickens is a political writer. Shakespeare is a political writer. Mm. Fitzgerald already gave that. I mean, there are loads and loads of them. Steinbeck but, is a political writer. But for the reason the lady, I forgot, I didn't catch your name, the mm. you, yeah. Mary said, you know, they're passionate about that one issue or that one thing they're looking at. Or Possibly. they... Eh? Or lots of things they're looking at. Or lots of things. Or they are are fabulous observers. They have fabulous powers of insight. Things that will cripple them in politics. You know, if if you're too sensitive in politics, you die quickly, you know. Um, uh, So the the, the thing to understand is they're massively important in society. They're massively important in defining the terms, the box, the rails that I run on uh, and and my... Contemporaries run on my, 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 my sort of analogs run on, but but you know to, to think that I should be worrying about building the rails or or you know who's created the box, dangerous, yeah, dangerous because I will, I will corrupt it. Has it all got something to do with the professionalisation of politics, i.e. the the Peter O'Born political class, people who grow up and do nothing but politics. So, by definition, they can only speak this very impoverished language mm. because that's all they do and that's all they know because they've been to policy walk school and they've worked in a think tank. And so that's a retreat, isn't it, from the, any Gladstonian view? And by parallel, so I'd suggest, the way that all kinds of artists conceive of their work is another kind of retreat. I mean, the commonplace that art which is explicitly engaged is bad art and low art and like socialist realism. Is that really true? Well, I think you still you have to still recognise not only its power to people, but the way in which, um, as David said, uh, 
governments can, uh, all pressure groups of all sorts, religious or whatever, can co-opt art to their uses and still do. There's a very interesting case at the moment in Saudi Arabia, of all places. Uh, in January, Saudi Arabia had its first ever public exhibition of contemporary art. I mean, proper big public one. This is a country, after all, that doesn't even have cinemas where the playing of music in public is still banned. And a really fascinating thing is emerging, which is a group of women artists who are making very explicitly political work against the even more repressive forces in an already extremely repressive society. But And their work... The work of these women is being sanctioned by the ruling elite as a some sort of, I suppose, as some sort of bulwark against even more repressive forces. Because Saudi Arabia looks bad enough to us, but um, there's there's worse. I mean, there are um, movements within Saudi um, culture to be even greater. I mean, for for even greater strictures on the lives of women. And it's very fascinating to see that what would normally look like art that's very threatening to the state is actually being used by the state. You could also say it's being controlled by the state, but it's, it's fascinating. It's happening literally now in the last month or two. So um, it's something that's it's like a little kind of test case in a way. But, but I think that's, that's that, what you've just described. I think that's a bit worrying because that's where politics are getting involved in art for completely the wrong reasons. I also think that Saudi Arabia had a pavilion at the Venice Biennale last year, which is the first time I've, you know, I've, I've, I've ever seen that and, and, yeah, and the art that's coming out. So, yes, there's obviously a, art is being used by mm-hmm. the, the dominant culture in that country to present present this. It could be a facade. There'll so, be a PR yeah, thumb. So surprising. Yeah. No, but so... You know, it is completely... Yeah. So there's, there is a danger. women artists to do it. So there's, there's, there's a danger when politics mm-hmm. does engage uh, or use arts. You know, yeah. it can be useful. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I, I say something that's probably very unpopular in this room. I actually think art needs politics less and less. <clears throat> For one of the great con- constructions of the post-war world was the Arts Council. Uh, Maynard Keynes' idea, I think, in the first instance. Mm. And why was it important? Well, the old stereotype of artists were they, if they, they were most of them, they lived in garrets. I mean, people think of paintings and so on, uh, and didn't make very much money because for a lot of artists, because art's a chancy affair, a lot of artists didn't didn't sort of quite make it over that hurdle. Well, today in the sort of day of the internet and so on, the small niche artist, the small niche producer of of of, 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 a, of a novel or whatever. Uh, can actually be much more successful than they, than, than they would have been. You know, the, the so-called long tail. You know, you're familiar with the book, The Long Tail, which mm. now says much, much. Uh, there's, there's much, much more scope for success in the in the in the medium. Now, I actually think that means things like the Arts Council are less necessary today, uh, and and state sponsorship of the art is less necessary with all the dangers that go with it than than, 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 than existed in the past. So, in a way, I'm with your uh, what was his name, the aggressive chap from Number Ten. They came. <laughs> I think there may be less, less need for the, for the, for the state yeah. to, get, to get meddling in there. No, but now you're talking about money. That's yeah, completely I am talking different. About money. No, no, no. I don't think John was talking about money. Very much not, I would have thought. You were talking about um, the uh, political intervention in uh, 
you know, for all sorts of other reasons. Yes, um, and you can't use that as a reason to take money away from the arts. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not having I'm that. It, I'm sorry. It, it took you, you five minutes to respond a, to that provocation. <laughs> you thought you were going to slip that one in. Art and artists <laughs> from high to low. Jerry Halliwell as an ambassador. <laughs> well, that's an art statement, isn't it? <laughs> um, I mean, I mean uh, perfectly seriously that that um, that art is employed. <laughs> by all sorts of organisations to give a sheen of chic and modernity to it. And the more non-specific, the better. The less engaged, the better. Now, we've got two more hands up here. Um, unfortunately, we're, we're very we're much there. out of time. Yes. Uh, just very, very quickly, three points. I don't think politics is stodge, actually. I think it is an art form in itself. And I think David's point that they have to swim in a tide defined by others... And yet pretend they are generating the waves themselves is an art form and fascinating. And I'll be talking about that tonight when I do my thing. Um, Second, to refer to Stefan's point about why it is an art form, they are such poor political artists at the moment. I think it's deliberate. I think they genuinely are frightened to communicate anything interesting because if they did, they'd be terrified by the reaction they would get. So I can't remember a single thing David Cameron said when Ed Miliband made his autumn conference speech last year. He was so frightened by his message, he made it utterly incomprehensible. (laughs) Um, So in a a way, their current inability to communicate is deliberate and a form of art in itself. And just one final point, it's no competition, I'm afraid. Art and culture enhances our life. But politics can really change people's lives on a daily basis through the tedium of legislation. I'm afraid to answer the question, politics wins over art and culture, in my view. <laughs> oh, well, how lovely. Oh, there we are. We needn't have come. We you, see, it took... <laughs> you see, it took a non-politician to say that, didn't it? <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. Hello, Tashi Lasalle. I'm with a private equity firm that invests in Africa and emerging markets. Two points, really. One is that the idea that art is somehow pure, that Sanjay made and that also you made, John, seems complete nonsense. Can you possibly imagine something like Tracy Enum's Dirty Knickers being construed as art in a world Mm. that didn't have the suffragette movement, that didn't have the radical feminism of the 1970s? It's... They're no, inextricably linked. Absolutely, yes. I, I don't disagree with that at all. Okay. Con- then... Context, I believe context is everything. Yeah, and that means absolutely that any artist will always have an agenda within that context. Absolutely. It's impossible yes. to divorce the yes, two. Yes. The second point is really a request, which is when I came to this breakfast, I thought, oh, how amazing. Somebody's going to explain the impact that a sonnet had or the development of the novel and why in and of itself that was transformative. I just wondered as a final point whether... The panel has any point of view on that? So art in its own right. Well, that's what I mean, casting about for. A case... <laughs> as we say in private equity, a case study. No, but I think you can... Individuals, I think us as individuals, we can, we can tell those stories. We each have our own personal narrative where we've engaged with art or culture and it has changed our lives. It's, it's, it's made a difference. So the it's way the, we... the personal as the political... Um, I'm not sure I'd go that far, so I'm not sure what, what, what that might mean. But I, I, so, as I think I, I was talking earlier that it, it happens on an individual. It's us as individuals. We all make up the world, and, and it's us individually and collectively that will always affect change, whatever that change is. And I think art is one of those catalysts, I think somebody used that word earlier, that 
enables us to do that. And I think it's, 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 it's to me, it's a no-brainer. It just seems very, very straightforward. Yeah. Yeah, just very quick point to sum up what you're saying, that surely what we're saying here, in contrast to a point that was just made, it's only art that can change our internal circumstances. <clears throat> And that's much more powerful than changing external circumstances. More please, we're casting around no, no, for case like, studies. There's a book by Ian Watt called The Rise of the Novel, which is about yeah. the ways in which in the 18th century the rise of the middle class was inextricable from the rise of the novel, which was inextricable from political independence. And if you want to actually know what the history of the novel is and its relationship to the evolution of current modern society, I will recommend it. Ian Watt. Good stuff. Right. Two, two lines of poetry. Hearts starve as well as bodies. Give us bread, but give us roses. Well, we're back at that point of the lovely idea of the unacknowledged legislators of mankind. Harvey, you've got some case studies. The best case study I can give, of course, is Live Aid and Live Aid, where music and and, and art together um, enforced change and uh, hmm. and that change is lasting and will be forever because it pushed the world to start thinking about Africa whereas previous to that they only looked at Africa as a kind of source rather than a, an issue that needs solving so I, I guess if you if you look at that properly um, but I, I, I personally think that um, politics should not meddle in art and that art and culture create the change and politics follow it, pick it up and use it. And I think that's really, to me, that's the differential of what, yeah. what actually happens. It, it is art and culture that lays the platform down for change uh, and often change forever. But it's politics that pick it up. If they're clever, they pick it up from the street and then utilise it um, for their own ends or maybe, hopefully, for the common good. Um, but it's rarely the other way around. I mean, they may, obviously, politics does, of course, influence by, by its legislation and so on and so forth. Uh, that's a different form of change. But natural change, A, always comes from the street um, and is not um, something that is... Um, it, isn't, it isn't something that's, you know, created deliberately. It comes out naturally. Well, Julia said we could have a few more minutes, so um, anyone would like to okay. reply to that? I mean, the, the importance of rock music is something we've... and other kinds of popular music is something we haven't touched on. But once again, it was incredibly important for, for Harvel with the, with the, um, the Velvet Revolution and, and all the rest. Yeah. Listening, listening to Steve Richards, I was reminded of a political conference I went to once, a proper political conference, not, not, not a thinking conference like this. And there was, there was uh, a, even lowbrow one. Uh, uh, um, and there was an Italian politician. He was a beautiful-looking man, one of these perfectly turned-out Latin politicians. And, and, and at some point in the, well, a bit like Peter, yes. Yeah, so, and, 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 and at some point in the in the meeting, he, he was talking, and he said, "Of course," he said, striking a pose. I am a natural leader. And the whole place was dead silent. <laughs> and he said, the, the trouble is, he said, I, I cannot find any natural followers. <laughs> uh, uh, and, 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 uh, of course, what he was describing in his way was the horror 
that all of us in my profession feel. You know, the, the idea that one day you'll be standing there holding the flag and you look round and there's nobody there. You know? <laughs> well, the... Uh, it happens to artists. Yeah? It happens to artists. It happens to artists. <laughs> but, yeah, but, but as somebody said, you know, the, 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 the artist is in, a, is in an area where taking risks is part of the game and, and the, risks, the risks, in a sense, in personal terms, are minimised. Now... Let me just, it's probably the last slot I'll have, just say something in terms of a parable for me. One of the things I fight for is civil liberties. And civil liberties is a minority pursuit. Mm. Right? It never applies to the majority. If it applies to the majority, it's not a liberty, it's a mass demand. Right? And the whole point about civil liberties is that they are almost invariably unpopular. That's why governments overrule them. Now, it's, I can actually pick you a parable from here, from this building we're sitting in. Because if you look back over the course of time, one of the things art does is it carries lessons forward from one era to another. So two, two parables. Parable number one is a poem. You will, you will recognise it when I give you the first line of it. It's written by a man called Pastor Niemöller, um, and he was a supporter of the... He was a U-boat hero uh, in the First World War. He became a pastor thereafter and was a supporter of the Nazis in the early part of the 30s. And he wrote a poem which starts with the words, First they came for the communists, and I was not a communist, so I said nothing. Then they came for the Jews, and I was not a Jew. And he goes on. And eventually... It ends with, and then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. He spent seven years in a concentration camp. But what he did in that one poem, which would be the only thing that's ever remembered about him, uh, is he carried forward from that time to now the lesson of that era, which we forget. Now, we read about it in the history books, but we don't really know the, the monstrosity of millions dying. Um, and the other one is here. You know, one, what's the title of this thing? Yeah. Name, not numbers. What's that from? I suspect it's from The Prisoner, which was shot here, which was a strange minority cult thing which was incredibly uh, insightful in terms of the era that was coming after it, not the era that went before it. Yeah? Uh, and so two areas. And I could not do the things I do in my minority pursuit of, of defending civil liberties if it were not for the artists who make the case that the freedom of one is the freedom of all. So that's the sea I swim in. That's it. Julia, did you want to say something or just tell us to stop immediately? I actually wanted to say something, which was picking up on Steve's point about really the power struggle, who, who's, who's the ruler supreme of art or politics. And in 1996, I helped uh, the first ever restitution art sale of art that was looted by the Nazis that had stayed tied up since the Second World War in a political quagmire, literally in an old lunatic asylum uh, in uh, Austria called Mauerbach. And uh, a treaty released this art to be sold for charity, and we had to try and repatriate this art to its rightful owners, which was incredibly complicated. Uh, And in fact, Habi, our photographer, and I took a woman who'd seen the art in a newspaper in Israel that had been literally ripped from her wall uh, and that she had identified, and we took her to be reunited with this painting. And it's really an observation that 
on some level, society and the politicians, I think, both revere and have contempt for art. Art belongs to them. Art can be a symbol of their power. And when the Leonardo da Vinci opened um, a couple of months ago, I went to the opening. The next day, I went to the Taryn Simon photographic exhibition at the Tate, which looked at the ways in which certain individuals had led their lives. And she'd photographed Hitler's accountant and his descendants. And one of the artifacts that Hitler's accountant had amassed as part of his power was one of the da Vinci's that was then repatriated. And so I think that art becomes a very cruel bauble for politicians. And that's, in a way, why you have Tracy Emin revered in one political system when she would be reviled in another. There's a lovely quotation, and you will know it completely, um, but it goes roughly... When I hear the word culture, I reach for my... My revolver. My revolver, and... You, you, is it Goering or who, who was it? Goering, yeah. Was Goering? Goering. That's. It was a line in a play. But you mean it never really happened? You see, that's the marvelous transformative quality of art. It, it becomes a factoid. Anyway, we've thoroughly explored, not thoroughly enough, the question of the relationship and the respective values. It took Steve to say, well come on, politics is, is everything. You see, you've been too humble. Much too humble. That's the first accusation yes. of that. <laughs> <laughs> but I merely say, in all humility, where are the Fitzgeralds and the Steinbecks? Thank you all very much indeed. <laughs> <laughs>